On this classic episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with a divorce and domestic abuse attorney named Helen about the ins and outs of divorcing a narcissist. Welcome, everyone, to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A. We are bringing back our Q&A episodes. This episode, we are bringing back a classic episode to start it off. It's an important episode. It's about divorcing a narcissist, high-conflict people, uh, The uh, what to do in court. It's, you know, we've been told that this was not just divorcing, your, divorcing a narcissist 101, it's divorcing a narcissist uh, 201 as well. So thank you for listening to this episode we will be bringing back you know uh depending on what time it is uh where you are either thursday or friday these episodes every single week with experts in the field we're going to bring we'll be bringing on therapists and others we don't know exactly what the others will be but it will be in this field of narcissistic abuse domestic abuse domestic abuse toxic relationships so you know this was an episode we recorded almost two years ago. And to me, it was at the time, the most important episode that we had done. And I had been sitting at home and thinking to myself, I need to learn more about uh, divorce, court, uh, co-parenting, parallel parenting, everything under the sun. I really need to speak to a lawyer. And I thought it one day. And then the next day in my mailbox was a note from Helen and then Helen sent me an outline, which was the show. And it was the most amazing thing ever. And, you know, sometimes the universe aligns and these are the things that happen. So, you know, we already have a bunch of people uh, lined up. We have uh, a lawyer coming on in a few weeks time, or maybe two weeks time or three weeks time, named Lloyd Malik, And he's out of Maryland. Uh, we've already recorded it. It's a great episode. Uh, Bill Eddy, who you've heard me mention many times, we've recorded with him already. He'll be on. H.G. Uh, Tudor, who is a narcissist himself, who helps people understand um, you know, what the narcissist brain is thinking. Uh, he will be on soon. We've already also recorded with, I'm off the top of my head, I know I recorded with someone else off the top of my head, but I can't think about who it is. Um, oh, we, uh, we recorded with Natalie Hoffman of Flying Free, whose specialty is... Uh, Christian abuse and uh, faith abuse as well. Uh, And we will be getting on very soon uh, Dr. Kenneth Adams, and he deals with enmeshment. And we'll be having Debbie Tudor back on uh, as well. And she was popular in our other Q&A episodes, which we will be uh, replaying those during this time uh, as well. So I just want to thank everyone uh, for for listening. Uh, We're going to be getting two shows a week now. And, you know, the survivor story will be on uh, Sunday, Monday for some people. And then this will be on Thursday, Friday for others. So uh, I just want to thank you for being a a listener to the show. And you're going to be getting a lot more content, a lot more content. And that's all we have to say this week. I'm sure it will be more of a spiel next time. And for experts in the field that 
want to be on the show, get a hold of me at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com and we will go from there. So now without further ado, here is my classic episode with Helen. Thank you for everyone out there who is listening to this episode. It is a very important episode. And with me today, I have Helen. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. Thank you. And Helen, you are an attorney of 30 plus years uh, dealing with high conflict people. And I'm now just going to give you the floor. And just to tell everyone out there, she sent me this outline before we began uh, earlier in the week. And it is so amazing and thorough. I am so excited for everyone to hear this episode because it's going to help so many people. And now without further ado, Helen, the floor is yours to tell us uh, the story of uh, your your attorney life and your uh, life with uh, narcissistic abuse as well. And then we'll also eventually get into question and answer and you giving us a rundown of uh, the court system as well. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. I am so glad to be able to talk to people who can really use the kind of information that I bring from um, my long-time experience as a lawyer. It is very true that narcissists um, really do outnumber, or, or I should say more broadly, people with thought disorders and personality disorders really do clog up court systems. And for people out there who feel like they are really experiencing just inordinate amounts of court time and court problems and threats and all of that, uh, there's no mistaking that that's happening to you. It really is. It's a real thing. And it's very hard for courts to deal with, and it's inordinately hard for the people to deal with. So that's why I wanted to address folks. Just uh, you are not alone. There are vast numbers of, of people who are dealing with the kinds of problems that you are. And I wanted to say one kind of philosophical point about that. Over the last 20 and 30 years, um, every state has passed laws against the battery and assault of women. And it, it was originally all caged that way in terms of male and female violence. Now statutes are written in a more gender neutral way. But, and there's been a massive public health information type campaign to reduce domestic violence. And so it is no surprise to me that more people are experiencing emotional violence that we have for some perpetrators taken fists off the table by criminalizing battery in the home. And so what we're seeing now in response is not that we taught the impulse to go away, and so now that kind of um, control issue is worked out psychologically more frequently than it used to be. We, it used to happen, power and control used to happen more by simply the use of, use of physical violence, and now it's becoming lots of different things. And so that's part of why people, I think, are experiencing more distress along these lines, and that's why I wanted to talk to you today. Yeah, well, when I was uh, reading the one of the books that you recommended uh, on your outline, uh, you know, in, in in my past when I looked at certain things, uh, when it came to what percentage of society has all of these cluster B personality disorders, usually the number that popped up was like the two point eight percent of the population have these personality disorders. And when reading this book uh, by Bill Eady, which was uh, high, uh, dealing with high conflict people in uh, legal disputes, the number was way higher 
than what everyone else uh, I've seen has been reporting. Uh, and like I think narcissistic personality disorder was around nine percent, if I remember correctly, which you know was took me a, took a, me aback that this was such a high percentage. So it's like it's no wonder yeah. why there's such a, a, a large degree of court cases nowadays. And I will also say this, that there's a lot of people who are dealing with people who may not meet the strict diagnosis of a personal di- disorder, personality disorder as used in the DSM-5. However, you are dealing with those kinds of behavioral traits and, and just out-and-out behaviors. So you, there's a lot more people on the what I guess I would call the penumbra of the shadow of <laughs> the personality disordered that you're still dealing with, not diagnosable. You know, my dad was never diagnosable or never diagnosed and was too slick to ever be caught up in anything really sorted. But um, nevertheless, absolutely narcissistic in his behavior, Mm -hmm. you know, would not have carried that diagnosis. But anyway, so there's a lot more people that are caught up in these kinds of problems. And I will also say that most people are caught up in these kinds of problems for a brief period of their lives. And it doesn't feel brief while you are in it, but this, but you do get past it, you do move on, and then you become hopefully a smart old person, which is what I'm holding myself up to be. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, by way of a little bit of um, background, um, I've been a lawyer for a very long time. I was a, um, a public lawyer uh, for not quite 25 years in a large metropolitan city on the west coast of the United States. Um, in that capacity, I did a lot, of, a lot of what's called family defense. I dealt with families who had had their children removed because of CPS. And there's a lot of the, the issues that face those families are typically domestic violence, substance abuse, mental health disorders. Those are the big ones. And so um, I began to understand and see that personality when I was a baby lawyer. And before it was really well teased out in literature like it is today, um, but over the years, you know, I graduated from public practice and went into private practice where I do, um, for paying clients, I do um, I do a lot of divorces. I, I tend, because my skills are with dealing with high-conflict people, I tend to get those kinds of cases. So I get very high-conflict divorce cases. I get very high-conflict CPS cases where um, the children have been taken away. I also do... Um, involuntary detention cases. These are people who are a danger to themselves or others. Um, I represent some families who are trying to get um, unsafe family members to a place of safety, and I also have represented people who feel like they are um, unfairly caught up in the mental health services trap, as it were, (laughs) and um, are resisting a period of of involuntary confinement. So I do those kinds of cases. I also do domestic violence protection orders. So now I do it as a high-end lawyer. I used to do it as a poverty lawyer, and that's one thing that I want to emphasize is that these issues are independent of socioeconomic class, education, race, all those good things. This is behavior that you see across the broad spectrum of people. So that's... um, my professional life, personally, I also I did grow up with a narcissistic father, and then I did what every woman does, and I went out and, and um, married one because I couldn't fix the, the big one. I married a smaller one, and I didn't have any insight into what I was doing. I really thought I was protecting myself at the time. I fell for the, you know, the glib 
love bombing at the beginning um, and then gradually realized that I had married somebody with very profound problems um, and among them alcoholism and uh, my dad was never alcohol involved but he was a, a rager he, he threw things and stormed around the house and things like that and that's what I married I married somebody who was uh, extremely rage filled and uh, threw things and was an unsafe personality to be around all of the time um, both of them were belittling, humili- humiliating verbally. Um, both of them were uh, terrifying uh, in every presentation. And that means that you just spend your life, you know, the walking on eggshells type thing um, and trying to avoid the rage. And what that means is that you are never prioritizing your own needs you know, for sunlight and air, <laughs> you're always worried about what the other person needs. And that's really the really unhealthy dynamic that goes on here in my experience. You know? did, did you ever have the conundrum of this is what I'm doing for my living and I'm helping people that are in these situations and then you're also in one of those situations yourself? Did you ever feel uh, odd about uh, that at the time and was wondering how you uh, were in that situation? Well, it was a profound self-teaching moment um, to come to the realization, you know, because when, you, when you're when you a young lawyer in particular um, and you go into a poverty practice, you think that um, you won't hit those problems. You know, you have a lot of ego behind you at that stage of your life. You're going to fix the world. And um, to realize, you know, five and seven and eight years later that I was also experiencing things where I was, you know, I I never, my first husband was never an actual hitter, but he certainly was a threatener. Um, That doesn't sound like the right language, doesn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, yeah. I absolutely went through a period of having a lot of wind go out of my sails, realizing that, you know, protecting my own children from violence was my number one goal in life. And to realize that I had turned right around and gotten myself into a situation where my my children were being raged at and yelled at and belittled, you know, it was just absolutely confounding to me. And that is how absolutely deep these behaviors go in a nonverbal way, right? Um, you know, I had no idea I was doing it, and I was doing it absolutely chapter and verse and didn't see it until, you know, decades later. And uh, what was part of your healing process coming out of that uh, to where you are now? And when you finished that relationship, uh, is that when you transitioned from being uh, a public uh, I guess, defender to being uh, a full-time uh, private defender? Yes. Um, so it was wrapped up in that. It definitely. So the biggest thing is that uh, you need time. You know, that time is the biggest healer. So after I went through all of that, I tried to stay at my public job for a while longer. Um, and uh, I went through a period of, of, you know, using antidepressants and working with a psychiatrist, and I will tell you that none of those answers worked well for me, and that what I needed to do was really change up my life. I needed to change what I did professionally so that I could get out of the, the PTSD-type echoes that were coming from my practice and um, causing me personal difficulty, and I needed to get out. I needed to make vast changes in my personal life. 
even after I split from my husband, you know, my child was going back and forth for visitations. Um, I enlisted the, the help of a friend who I am now married to, um, who was a very big person. He's six foot eight, and he went back and forth to visitations with us to make sure that handoffs went smoothly. And I will tell you that that was a significant piece of my early attraction to that individual um, was because he was so safe for me, and he um, assisted my son. There were nights when my ex was drunk and locked in the house with my child. I was able financially to make sure that my son always had a phone, uh, so he was an early user of a cell phone for a kid. I think he was about 11 when he got his first cell phone. Um, and this is a long time ago when that wasn't very common, but it was because I was so afraid of, of how visitations were going. So um, realized that, you know, the issues that we're going to be talking about today hit absolutely every educational level, every class, every every stratus of society, people are coping with these kinds of problems. So, yes, what did I do? I took, I grew up, I took years to get over it. I'm just older than you guys are that are still coping with it. Time is the great healer. So n- now with uh, you being on the private side of things, you've dealt, uh, obviously, um, well, uh, not obviously, most likely dealing with um, maybe representing people with these disorders when you were a public defender. So you've seen yes. uh, both sides of the tales. Um, so as far as uh, when someone comes to an attorney, uh, such as yourself, uh, uh, understanding what types of abuses uh, there are, what is the role of the attorney? Because a lot of people might rely on you as uh, maybe being a psychologist of sorts, but what, what is specifically your role and uh, that everyone should understand uh, when asking uh, questions of an attorney and what they uh, should do? So the biggest thing that I have to teach people is, that the law can't do anything about the emotional state that you are in. By the time you are seeking help, and for the time, then let me first of all mention, yes, I have represented many people who were batterers and abusers over the years. My strategy in representing people like that is generally always to try and get them to a place of health. If you want to parent your children, you must be in a place of health. You must be where you are no longer relying on abuse dynamics to parent your children. And so I want you to go to a really good parenting class, and I want you to have a really good therapist. So I do represent people who have been abusers, and I will tell you that some of them do turn around and look at you and say, oh, I didn't know. Good on you for telling me. Where do I go? How do I learn? I mean, that is a fair number of people that really genuinely do not know that their behavior is problematic. They think they are leaving the family. Um, But there are people who just dig in and defend themselves, and I never did that. I never had anything to do with that, that kind of thing, and you're wasting my time and money. Those people in my practice tend to be what I I call self-firing because we're not going to get along well, and they will eventually go out and find a lawyer that meets their needs better. Um, so I do, on average, represent kind of more people who are more towards the, the victim end of the spectrum, um, but they do walk in the door in all flavors, and it's kind of hard to tell what's going on. 
for quite a while sometimes. So when when people who are experiencing feeling victimized um, come into my office, the first thing I have to do is set their expectations. We're going to talk a lot about the psychology of your ex and what you're dealing with. But the fact of the matter is that courts are not about making you feel better. There is nothing that I can get you from a court that is going to make you feel better. And the only way that you are ever going to feel better than the condition you are in now is if you go and get mental health treatment and you um, learn to feel better on your own. Courts are not about making you feel any better. Everybody who goes through a divorce comes out feeling like, or a conflict, a conflicted divorce, comes out feeling like they were kicked in the stomach. Your expectations need to be very businesslike when you approach a lawyer because that's the only relief that I can really grant. I can um, get you to a place where, you know, your homeownership is clear. I can get you to a place where your car title is clear, but that's not going to satisfy the emotional nature of what you're going through. When it becomes really complex is when there's children involved because children are always, of course, emotional centers and hot flashes for us. Um, We all have such strong and deeply seated um, emotions about how children should be raised, about our relationships with our children. And so that's where um, the law can become very panicky feeling. And I still have to encourage clients when you are working with a lawyer, you need to have your business hat on because this is all about business. And if you don't have your business hat on, you're wasting my time. And because I bill by the hour, you're wasting your money. So a lawyer always has to pay attention. And I do all of the time. I am overly built this way. I always pay attention to my client's emotional condition but you must understand that I don't have the tools. I'm not a therapist. I don't have the tools to help heal you in that way. So if I'm dealing with somebody who is going through a really awful situation, some sort of aggression, and feeling very victimized, then I always, 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 every time we meet, tell them that they must be getting some um, mental health help. And... There are a lot of resources available in every community. Uh, if you're in the United States, health care plans have to have no health parity, and that means that they have to offer some sort of no health benefit. So see what your insurance offers, even if you are on um, a marketplace insurance plan or an Obamacare-type insurance plan. Those always have no health benefits to them. And then the other thing, if you are experiencing um, aggression, and even if it's, as we say, just verbal aggression, um, there are domestic violence uh, response agencies in every jurisdiction. It's part of the United States' Violence Against Women Act. The Violence Against Women Act funds domestic violence response agencies, and those are incredible resources. Start with the websites in your community. To find services in your community, the great website in the United States is 211.org. And then you put in your zip code and the kinds of problems or the kinds of help you need, and it will spit out 
um, crisis line information. It will spit out domestic violence response agencies. It will uh, spit out all kinds of resources. So long circling back to your question, what do you do when you kind of first interact with a lawyer? What do you expect What about the emotional content? Um, long story long, the lawyer is the business side. And your, emotion, your emotions are never going to be treated by a lawyer. And you will uh, frustrate yourself, waste your time and money to the extent that you try and use your lawyer to address your emotional um, experience. And this doesn't mean that your experience wasn't real or important. It just means that this isn't the right person for that. So when someone comes in and, you know, they've been treated uh, horribly, they've been abused, and a lot of people that are in that situation, obviously a lot of them just want to get it over with, but there are are a certain percentage of people, uh, male and female, that want uh, revenge of some sort. They want them to pay, and you can tell that's going on. Uh, You, at that point, you tax them to go to see a therapist and uh, start dealing with this because that's not what you're about. Your job is to, you know, get this done uh, so you can start your life, uh, restart your life again, Uh, not about imposing hurt on other people. And that kind of thought process really won't get anyone anywhere is what you're saying. Yep, that's right. And courts are not not good places of revenge, Yeah, it, especially divorced lawyers. Now, it may be later on that you feel like, you know, if, if somebody ruined your business or by stalking you caused you harm that led to medical bills, you know, you can still sue somebody who has caused you a lot of damage. But I'm not the lawyer for that because I'm a divorce lawyer um, and, you know, trying to get people through a transition to where they and their children are in safety. But, um, you know, there may be times when it's right to try and sue someone if they have caused you serious economic harm. You know, I'm not ruling it out. I'm just saying that I'm not the right person for that. If you're going to a divorce lawyer, then what we're going to do is we're going to get you divorced and we're going to get your kids to safety and you need to have your business hat on in order for us to get that done. So as far as having uh, your business hat on and uh, coming prepared to you, uh, what is, I guess, the biggest thing uh, when people come to you, what don't they have and what should they have when they come to you to be as prepared as possible? So most there's a lot of um, false information that people have about divorce court and um and domestic violence protection court in some in some ways. Um, one of the, the preconceptions about divorce court, for instance, is oh, there's this big advantage to being the first to file. And the fact is, is that except in very rare circumstances, there is no advantage to being the first to file. And it's just a game that abusers play to try and make your head hurt. Uh, so most of the time, all the court wants to do is just get you divorced. They don't want to pay attention to, you know, who filed, you know, 28 seconds earlier than the other one, um, who filed their parenting plan first, that kind of thing. The court just wants to know, Mom, what do you think? Dad, what do you think? Uh, And then if that is too badly, uh, you know, mismatched, then they might want to appoint a guardian ad litem or a psychologist to look at it further. But in general... You know, the court doesn't want, the court wants to just deal with the problems. They don't want to do anything that fans the conflict. And courts have mostly gotten pretty smart at 
you know, keeping a case schedule, just keeping the case moving forward, trying not to engage in this period of high conflict, which divorces are. Now, there are always exceptions, but for the most part, that's the drive of courts is just let's get you divorced. If you're having trouble getting a, a business hat on, um, then you need to to find a mentor to help you get you through the divorce process. So, you know, another analogy, um, my mom uh, died of cancer and the whole period of her diagnosis and treatment was very difficult for me to absorb because she was my best pal. And uh, so at some point um, I brought along a friend who, who would take notes because it was so emotional for me that I couldn't, I couldn't keep my business hat on as it were. So bring someone with you if you're having trouble, and then that person will be somebody that you can talk to later on. Um, there are some, some downfalls that lawyers will tell you. You do blow attorney-client privilege, and so there may be times when you want that person to leave the room. But for the most part, for um, just hearing the general, this is how it works, this is what we need from you, um, and, you know, have your friend there, and your friend can help you sort through all of that information when you're feeling a little less emotional. So there are some strategies to try and cope with the fact that you're feeling just absolutely knocked down, drug out by the time you're in the lawyer's office. <laughs> so have a head to listen with is, and if it can't be yours, then bring somebody. And when they also come to you, uh, like, I guess a lot of the things that I hear when people get a hold of me, uh, and when I was recently had a, a talk with uh, Layla on an earlier podcast, she was uh, the wife of a police officer, and he knew yeah. uh, how to abuse her without leaving marks on her. So when it comes to abuse that is emotional abuse, verbal abuse, and it is not uh, physical abuse where you cannot take pictures, there's no marks to show anyone, uh, what, you know, I guess frustration for a lot of people is it's hard to prove emotional abuse when it comes to court. So how uh, do people go about uh, taking this uh, abuse to a judge and proving it? And, yeah. and what do they have to do? Or is it even possible? So, yeah. So this is a really good question. And back to my sort of philosophical point at the beginning of this, again, it's no surprise to me that people are now coping with more psychological abuse or, you know, unmarked abuse, as it were, uh, since people have gotten so smart about domestic violence statutes. So we've done, you know, Domestic Violence Awareness Month kind of in the wrong direction. We've taught the batterers to change up their game. So, but that has happened, and there are people. Layla's story was really, really, and I, police officers, you know, always have authority issues. <laughs> and uh, can be very dangerous if they're engaged in a problem like Layla was ex experiencing. So that is just, that, you know, police officers, are, I think, are kind of a special class because of their position of authority. So just realize then that you really do need partnership with um, somebody who's going to help you through a process like this if you're dealing with a police officer. But in general, the first issues are you have to know that this is abuse, right? Um, so a lot of times people put up with different behaviors that you're not really sure are abuse. You just don't know why you feel the way that you feel. So there were a couple of uh, books along the way that really helped frame things for me. Um, and the, the two that, that come to mind right now um, are Patricia Evans' books. The, one of them is called 
uh, controlling people, and one of them is called um, The Verbally Abusive Relationship. Those two books helped me identify what was going on in my own life. And they, and the, in particular, the Controlling People book has helped me see the different kinds of control. Domestic violence is always about power and control. Verbal abuse is always about power and control. And part of that angle is that the verbally abusive person is using that behavior to make themselves feel better in some way or form, either to control the other person or to inflate their ego a little bit um, by, you know, denigrating the other person. So it's always about power and control, um, and even through the dynamics of substance abuse and those kinds of issues, it's always about power and control. So read as much as you can about power and control dynamics, and if you're in a psychologically-based power and control situation, you have to read more because it is more subtle and hard to tell. So the first thing is just to realize that you're in it. There's a lot of different kinds of abuse these days. There's financial abuse. Um, where someone, you know, controls all the money. A lot of people's paychecks are direct deposited right now, so paychecks can get direct deposited into a joint account, and then somehow or other that account is always empty, and there's never any money to spend. And when you ask for money, there's never any money. So financial abuse, you ought to be able to spend the earnings that you earn as you see fit. And some of that, of course, is going to be joint expenses for households and things like that, but... The rest of it you ought to see is something that you have control over. There's also immigration abuse in the United States running, running rampant right now uh, for, for women of color and, and uh, women who are here undocumented. You know, I'm going to call ICE on you, or um, I'm not going to, you know, when our hearing comes up, I'm, I'm not going to sponsor you anymore. That can be just terrifying, particularly if you have a child with that person here in the United States. Immigration abuse is a recognized category of abuse under um, uh, the uh, Violence Against Women Act. And so there, so there is awareness of that issue, and that is a very hot-button issue right now. There's also other kinds of legal threats. You know, if you leave me, I'll take the house. If you leave me, I'll take the kids. And then there's all the different flavors of um, verbal abuse. Um, you know, the oh, you look like a whore, did you really go out like that? I bet you're talking to other people. Um, how dumb can you be? Are you really that stupid? Um, those kinds of things. And, of course, the far more subtler forms um, of verbal abuse that are all about establishing power. So I'm so sorry that my answers are so long-winded, but the first thing is you just have to know that it's abuse, and you have to be able to walk into that lawyer's office and say, hey, I'm being abused. Then what you need to do is start to document it. Um, so as soon as you are starting to feel like, yep, I am being abused, you need to start documenting it. And this is really important to do over time. So this isn't just a one-off thing. So if you are parenting, what you do is you keep a calendar. And at the end of every day, you write into your calendar who took care of the kids, who took the kids to school, who took the kids to the dentist. Because courts are looking at the pattern of who is doing what to establish the long-term parenting plan for the children in custody. So it's the day-to-day -day 
who does what that's very important. And then you're also going to make a note of any of the, of the power and control dynamics that went on that day. So, uh, and you want to make a note of the date and the time so that it's very factually detailed if you ever have to testify in court about why this abuse is so horrible and so, you know, debilitating over time. So, for instance, November 15th, um, I took the kids to school and picked them up. Um, he came home at 8 o'clock. He'd been drinking. Um, he wanted to know uh, where the money he gave me was. Uh, because he needed cigarettes, and I told him I needed the money for groceries, and he took the money away from me. Next day, you know, I took the kids to school. Um, I went and got money from my mother for groceries. Uh, I picked the kids up from school, um, and we went to the park in the afternoon. Next day, same thing. Those, those over time create the most powerful records to use in court, and if the court can see that day after day, small amounts of money are being taken, threats about passports are being made, um, belittling language is being used in front of the kids. So in, in the United States, the, the rules of evidence say that contemporaneous notes, which means notes made at or near the time of the event, are generally admissible in court. And so you can use those ad nauseum. If you're a computer person, just every day type in the date and what, what happened that day. If you're a, a pen and paper person, you can do the same thing. Or you can just keep a calendar and write down every day kind of what happened. But that's how you build a case, and that's how lawyers build cases. It's not just about a one-off, this happened. But the way that you win psychological abuse cases is by taking very good notes over a long period of time. So the court system will respect you more in a way if you are keeping these detailed notes? Is that because they t they'll take you more seriously about what you're saying, even though in some ways you won't be able to prove specific, like specifically that these things did happen? It's just the act of writing them down? Yes. So um, it's evidence. And if there, so if it, it's, you know, sometimes evidence is rebutted or disproven. But most of the time, evidence like this is unrebutted. Who can remember November 15th of last year, mm -hmm. right? So it, it starts to paint a more reliable picture of what this person is experiencing. Now, in general, like I've tried to talk about before, courts are very blunt instruments and are not going to deal with the level of individual day-on-day -day abuse and anxiety that you experience. They just don't have the tools to deal with that. Nor really would you want them marching around, because courts can be very dumb, um, marching around in your private life that much, right? And so the court is much better at dealing with physical abuse than emotional abuse. And the way that you make an emotional or psychological abuse case is by documenting it over time. And, of course, courts are very much concerned about a couple of ancillary issues. Did the abuse make you miss days of work? so that maybe you're entitled to a bigger piece of the financial pie than your partner because he, um, you, the abusive partner interfered with your ability to go to work and earn a living? Did the abusive person make you take care of the kids all the time such that you couldn't have a job? Those kinds of issues, the ancillary issues sometimes get very important in cases. 
And then um, another ancillary issue, of course, is custody and the who's doing what every day um, evidence is what the court needs in order to craft a parenting plan for the children that meets their needs post-divorce. So it serves a whole bunch of functions. It paints a picture of what you're experiencing in your life, and a lot of being in a courtroom is being able to tell a story persuasively. And if you have testimony that is supported by these diary-type entries, it's extremely powerful in court. And then, you know, then I can lead you through it as you as you testify and tell the court, and then we can add color to it. How did that make you feel after that happened? What was that like for you? You know, were you physically shaking? Were you, you know, did you have other symptoms of fear? Did you have to go to the doctor because you had so many, you know, GI issues from stomach upset that it had to be treated? You know, then we could do a lot to, to color that picture in. And courts don't like mean people anymore than you and I do. So it's very effective, tends to be very effective. That being said, without that business hat level of preparation, You'll never get there. You must have your business hat on. You must do this in a planned way. And, and speaking of the business hat, a court, I guess, will see things as black and white. They, they don't want to deal with anything that is on the peripheral. They don't want to think in certain instances. And one of the books you gave me to read, um, there was a little note in there that said, don't diagnose your partner or whoever your de- the defendant right. is. So when you're dealing with a, if someone's trying to hire a lawyer and that lawyer is going about a plan where they are using a diagnosis or something in there, is that a point where you say, I need to get a different lawyer? So here's the problem with us diagnosing. Lawyers, we are lawyers. We are not psychologists. And Lord help us if lawyers were psychologists because we think in a really twisted way some of the time. Um and chances are you're not a psychologist either. So in court, you don't want to go in with the conclusory statement, he's a narcissist, he's got a cluster B personality disorder, you know, he, she's histrionic. This is one of those cases, and, and you can hear your eighth grade English teacher saying, don't tell me, show me, because that's what the court needs. The court needs evidence, not opinions. So it's not useful, in my experience, to go in saying, He's got a narcissistic personality disorder. Unless I've got the goods, unless I've got a psychological evaluation by a trained psychologist with diagnostic credentials that says, yes, he has a he has a narcissistic personality disorder. So that kind of language, unless you've got the power of, a, of a, an expert behind you, that kind of language is not useful to the court and actually will result in your um, opinions being um, discounted because what the court wants to see is evidence. The court wants to see that diary of all of the days and what you experienced. The the court wants to hear the story of what you have experienced with the names, dates, places, who was there, what words were said, you know, and ideally it matches up, you know, for instance, with a withdrawal from the checking accounts so we can cross tabulate things that give it this insane level of reliability in your testimony. And that's a beautiful thing. So the person, even though that they're 
thinking about the diagnosis, what they I guess they should yep. start proving is this person has a history of erratic behavior. You're not going to put a finger saying it's this specific thing. It's just saying this was their behavior on this day. This was their erratic behavior on this day, and this is their erratic behavior on that day. So therefore, you're you're yeah. you're not. Uh, showing that you're uh, might be coming up to some conclusions, which gives you a better standing within the court. Yes, yes. Okay. And also, I and and also, it's just it's so effective. It bombards the judge. It makes the judge feel like they were there for all of these individual acts that led up to this. Whereas if you just walk in and say, "Judge, he's a narcissist, and therefore I want the kids," you're never going to get custody. Yeah, I uh, once had a narcissistic. Uh, I don't sorry, not understand. I had, I had a neighbor with a cluster B personality disorder. I knew I had just moved into my new house. I knew my neighbor had a problem after uh, she accused me of uh, flooding her house after a big rainstorm that water retained on my roof. And I knew right away that I was about to have a problem and she wanted to give me to give her $10,000 just to get rid of the problem right away. And I was in his, I was, went hysterical. I was like, what do I, I this person, mm-hmm. and uh, they had me immediately on edge. But I said to myself, I've dealt with, uh, I haven't dealt with someone that's not related to me in this way, but I've dealt with some people like that before. So immediately what I did was I just took notes every day. Whenever something mm-hmm. erratic happened, I sat and I took notes. I sat and I took notes and uh, I just kept on doing it. Eventually, I did also take video of uh, her east troughs and things like that. But I just kept on taking notes and kept on taking notes. And one day, uh, I had over a roofer, and then the roofer went to his uh, car, and she engaged with him. And I don't know what the engagement was, but the next day, uh, I had enough, and uh, I went to call the police just to file harassment charge uh, that she's just making my life uh, miserable. And they said to me, uh, the person's already there. And I was like, what are you talking about? So it turns out she had called the police and to file a uh, charge against the roofer for uh, attempted threats to her life. So it turns out they were already next door taking her, uh, her statement. And uh, 10 minutes later, they were over at my home. So they came to ask me questions. And what I did, even though I wasn't even in court yet, I brought out all of my notes. And they looked at them. They looked at me. And they said, you don't have a problem here, sir. And neither does the other person. Because they listened to her and they saw all of the notes that I had been taking. And they assessed this. Even though they weren't, I wasn't in a court of law, but they were people of law. Uh, and yeah. at that point they looked at me and said, I will not have any problem. And cause they, they believed me, I was prepared. I showed them that I was prepared and, uh, I left and I had no problem. And those people also did not get charged. Um, cause I was dealing yeah. with someone. And you with, were unemotional by then. You've managed to tap into your, what is it? Into your right brain. I always have those backwards. I, yeah. I, I bit my tongue for a full year <laughs> with the person yeah. next door, a full year. Um, yeah. and I just knew, I was just like, and, eventually this person would that, self-destruct. That is the way out of a violent or abusive relationship is, um, to plan that way. So let's talk about that for just a sec. Actually, I got one more thing to add to why you don't diagnose people in court. 
There's a lot of things that look like cluster B personality disorders. Substance abuse disorders can look a lot like cluster B because the person becomes so involved in in trying to get their next you know, hit or their next drink that they become extremely narcissistic because that's the only thing that they want is their next drink. So that starts to look a lot like a narcissistic personality disorder, but when you clean up the substance use and maybe the you know, depression that's there too, um, you find out that there really isn't a personality disorder. There's just a substance use disorder and some other, you know, lower level type issues there. So that's another reason that you don't diagnose is that there's a lot of behaviors that look like uh, personality disorders and really aren't. And those are, like I say, when I represented people who are bullies in one way and another and, and you draw that behavior to their attention, they're like, oh, geez, all right, I'll go get that fixed. I didn't know. You know, they are out there. You know, and, and more than you think, more than you would think. People just grow up, a lot of people grow up in households that lack emotional intelligence and they grow up with very weird behaviors that they don't understand are, are so, um, you know, unhelpful to people in relationships. So those are out there. And when it comes now to uh, the courts, uh, the question I guess a lot of people have is now the, the children are coming into play. And uh, yeah. maybe uh, the use of a mediator, where does that come in? And I guess a big question for a lot of people is not just, uh, you know, how we split time with the children, but a lot of people have fear for their children uh, yeah. and being with these people alone. So you can explain how uh, that uh, system works and how, uh, what you can do best to protect your children uh, in these, in these uh, situations. Yeah. So the first thing is, let's talk about, just for a moment, about levels of safety um, and levels of issues that you're facing. So almost all domestic violence starts as verbal abuse. Generally speaking, uh, the rule is that you don't go straight to physical violence. You start at verbal abuse. And so how do you know if it's going to get more serious or if it hasn't been serious in the past? How do you predict if it's going to happen again? And so let me just first put a plug in for physical safety. You must survive this. You must. And so that's the first thing to evaluate is are you at risk of physical harm? So first of all, if there has been violence in your relationship in the past, then assume, you know, the, the general rule, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And so assume that that will come up again and start planning for your life in terms of feeling like, yes, physical violence is a definite possibility here. If there has been repeated physical violence and you have excused it and you have just decided that, you know, it's, you know, I can deal with it, it's not that bad, Realize that with children in the middle, exposing children to domestic violence can be held against you. So moving your children to a place of safety is critically important if there is ongoing domestic violence going on in your home. Not doing so can be seen by the system to be a failure to protect your children. So if there is physical violence going on in your home, you have to act more quickly than the kinds of things that I am otherwise saying to you. How do you act quickly? You start by going to one of the domestic violence response agencies. So just go to the Google machine, type in your jurisdiction and domestic violence response or domestic violence agency, 
and you will find at first just the crisis line. Call into a crisis line. Start to get some help evaluating the situation that you are in. One of the important predictors of lethality, now these are domestic violence incidents that lead to a fatality, is access to guns in the home. So are you, if you are living with somebody who is a known user of guns, trains on guns, has guns in the home, then the risk of something happening to you is greatly elevated and you need professional help in getting out of that situation. So that's the first thing is consider the safety of your circumstances and consider whether you need to act fast. After that, generally speaking, I am hoping that the answer is no, I don't have to act fast. I can plan for how I'm going to get out of this. So first of all, realize your emotions are going to be all over the place. You're going to have good days and bad days. You're going to have days when you feel like you want to go back to the abuser. And that's all natural, and it's part of the psychology that you guys are otherwise trying to tease out. And you and I talked about that there's going to be a guest in a few weeks that is going to help you understand the, the you know, kind of neurological level of why this attraction is so strong and why it goes back and forth and even in the face of really bad behavior you're still attracted to that person that I don't understand I don't have any answers for it all I know <laughs> is to how to plan for it and try and get out of it right yeah. but your emotions are going to do that right you're going to go backwards and forwards because that's just how it all that's how it all works you know um, so taking the time to plan for it um, and earn money, save money, um, find that magical savings account, even give it to your mom to put in her coffee can. Do something that gives you a little stash of cash to get out the door with. And there are some times in your life where you, um, where you have to be not proud. And one of, the one of the things that I tell people when they come in the door at my firm is if they're really in a high-risk situation and I think we need to be planning to get them out, I say, you know what, everybody's got an auntie or a grandma, and you need to go ask grandma for attorney's fees for help to get you out of this because there are times when you just need help getting out of it because it's hard. So in general, save money so that when the time comes, you're able to leave and find a place to stay. You will last until you can get a job. You can stay with your mom or whoever until you get a job. So that's the first thing is, is, is plan. And that planning piece has an oddly soothing quality to it when you're really worked up, you know, when you're very emotional. If you can shift yourself over to that problem-solving brain, you know, then you have started to, that's a nice little bit of coping mechanism for the times that you're in. It's not overall going to solve your feeling of victimization. That's going to take a whole lot of therapy to get that gone. But that first piece of it is, yes, I, I can tap on my business head when I need it. I can find it when I need it. And just the act of planning is often something that, um, that pulls you out. So, Start to plan for everybody's safety. Start to plan for what this is going to look like. Uh, consult a lawyer before you actually leave. Ask some of the questions about custody in your individual case. In general, custody decisions are made based on who is doing the everyday care of the children, who gets them off the school bus, who takes them to the doctor, who goes to the parent-teacher conferences. And if the answer is both of you, then both of you are going to end up parenting these kids in the long run. 
the vast, vast, vast preference of United States courts is uh, joint custody. And so the odds are very, very good you are going to end up in some form of joint custody. If you are concerned that the other parent is being inappropriate around the children, then you've got to cope with that based on what kind of inappropriateness you think is going on. A lot of people are concerned about language in front of children, and I can tell you that without evidence, courts are going to have a really hard time with that. So how do you get evidence? Getting kids into therapy is often a good way to do that. But be prepared because um, kids don't always say in therapy what you think they're going to say. And so a lot of different issues crop up in therapy than, um, than necessarily are the ones that you are driving at. Also realize that this particular bully may be more quickly able to get to you than to your children. And I have seen plenty of cases where there could be no contact between you know, the victim and the perpetrator, but the perpetrator was kind of an okay parent. That doesn't feel fair. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like it should happen. But the odds are really good that it will happen. That's a different story if the person is abusing children also. But if all of the spouses, all of the abuse is directed at one of the parents and the parenting is okay, even though it's unfair, the court is going to award joint custody. So what do you do? You try to make the most of joint custody. You try to make it so that, you know, like I say, I supplied my child with a phone so that I always knew that he could call me if something bad was going on. Um, and also it let me, it gave me a way to just chat with him before he went to bed if, you know, if he wanted to. Um, so plan for joint custody. Figure out how it's going to work because that is going to be the court's presumption. Very, very few people get sole custody these days, even in high-conflict and dangerous situations. So then you asked a little bit about mediation, and this is where um, let me give my little plug for Bill Eddy. So Bill Eddy was um, an attorney from San Diego who did divorce cases, um, and actually, I think he was a mental health social worker first, yeah, he uh, was, and he then was. he went to law school. Um, because strictly because he got interested in the kinds of people that he felt court systems court systems colloquially call them frequent flyers, people who have a lot of interaction with court systems. And so Bill Eddy got curious about why some people were frequent flyers and why some people, you know, weren't. And he got into what he calls um, high-conflict people. And so he's written a number of, they're almost pamphlets, right? The one that you read wasn't very long. Um, in digital form, it was 400 pages. I think if it was actual paper, oh, it would have been long. like, okay. I, was a, I was a quick reader. Yeah, okay. So a couple of the others are more like pamphlets. Um, like the So he has a method of responding to high-conflict people um, first of all, he has the book that you read, which I think is just called High Conflict People in Court or something. Yeah, High Conflict um, People in uh, Legal Disputes. In Legal Disputes. And then he has a number of, of other publications. Uh, one is called Splitting that is particularly about borderline. 
uh, dealing with people who have borderline personality disorder. And another one of his books is called BIF, which stands for Brief, Informative, Friendly, and Firm. And that is his communication style that he tells you how to do this. Um, so let's talk through some of his kind of principles. His idea is like mine. You try to get to a functional understanding of who you're dealing with in court. So you try to understand, and he does try to understand. I don't care very much about diagnoses. He does like to use them because it helps him um, describe what kind of behavior you're likely to see. So he talks about, for instance, if you're dealing with a narcissist, then learn how to give them airtime and um, find ways to praise them. And even though this runs antithetical, I shouldn't have to praise him. You know, I am so tired of praising him, all the rest of it. But if you want to get further in court, then you praise him a little bit. You know, hey, I, I, that parenting plan has some really good components in it. Let's talk about it. Anyway, so Bill Eddy has, you know, hands-on techniques for how to deal with people who have different personality disorders in court. And like I say, for the narcissists, you have to find ways to praise them and make them feel like the smartest person in the room before you can get them to sit down and just mediate, you know, put their business hats on and actually get to where you can get to a parenting plan that's mediated and not have to go to trial. Um, so Bill Eddy is a really good um, tool to read if you are dealing with a high-conflict individual in court. Um, now, what are some of the other tools that you can use? One of them is to go to structured communications with that person. Don't let yourself in for any more abuse. Make communications become electronic. And the curve that I see people do is that, first of all, they, they start to do everything by email or text message. And then that sort of falls apart until there's finally an explosion. There is some sort of fight in front of the kids or in the hallway or something. Something bad happens, and now we really don't want to communicate with each other. There are a few um, apps or websites for people who are experiencing um, stress with co-parenting. Um, there's one called Our Family Wizard, which does um, scheduling. And so the idea is that everybody in the family can see the schedule and um, that has the visitation schedule and everything on it. And it reduces a lot of the conflicts over who picks the children up at what time and where. So that's our family wizard. And I think it also has a chat component to it, but I'm not 100% certain. Um, then there is one called um, Talking Parents or Parents Talking. I've forgotten which way it is. I think it's Talking Parents. And that one is designed so that the court can see uh, the interactions between the two parents. And so knowing that the court can look in at those communications at any time tends to keep people on better behavior. So there are vehicles out there to have your communication be very, very structured. And that will immediately reduce um, abusive communications you know, by just several order of magnitudes for most people. Just having the communication go strictly electronic, strictly written, and in a way that can be produced to the court at any moment, that really reduces conflict. So, and you don't have to wait for court intervention to start to use those apps. You can you can communicate to the person. I have signed us up for Our Family Wizard, um, and I am inviting you also to 
and then um, hopefully this will reduce conflict over scheduling. So those apps really do work and have a really useful place. Um, and then if you need a restraining order because the person continues to use abusive language or communicate outside of the app, you've got the record that you could submit to the court and show that you need a restraining order. Um, sorry, as far no, as I, I, I'm sorry to interrupt, but as far as uh, the children go and uh, the actual divorce proceedings start, when it comes to a child, and maybe I'm just going out of order here, and I should have let you finish. When it comes to a child, and a lot of different, a lot of parents say like the child wants to stay with me. They verbally said they want to be with me, uh, and they keep on fighting for that. Is that something the court cares about, and is it eventually something that will work against you? So it will really generally work against you when you go in and you say, you know, the child wants to be with me, and he told me so. Um, courts want to protect children from becoming pawns in the middle of a divorce proceeding. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways that they do that is by deeply discounting anybody's account of where the kids want to be. And that's why I tell you to make a, a record of who committed, committed is a bad word, but who performed the daily acts of parenting, because that's really what the court is going to go, go on. And, you know, sometimes that can be hard for working women. You know, if you're the one who, who earns the money, um, then it may also look like you're the, not the one who's performing acts of parenting because you're not the one taking the children to school and picking them up at school because unemployed, you know, partner is, is doing that minimal parenting task. So that's where your journal is going to become helpful about, you know, uh, Billy called me after school because he was upset. Um, and I tucked the children into bed at night and I sang to them. So you're still doing roles of parenting, even though, you know, some of the concrete things may be picked up by the other person. So that's where those logs really become important because courts will discount whatever any parent says the child wants. Courts may not discount quite so much, um, you know, other kinds of witnesses. So if you have other witnesses, like teachers, um, who will say a good word for you, or even, you know, again, courts will discount relatives somewhat, but not as much as the parents themselves. So if grandma is spending a lot of time with the kids, grandma can be a witness into what's going on. Now, an exception to this is older kids, because courts don't want kids to run away from home. And so by the time kids are starting to be I would say by 15 and 16, courts are starting to listen pretty hard to what a youth wants um, in terms of their living situation because a lot of times the youth's um, voices are not being heard by either parent at that stage of their lives. <laughs> and so that that's the exception. But for very young children, the court is going to want to place the children with the person who is doing the daily acts of parenting. And again... Um, it's another case. It's kind of like the battery issues. It's like um, the court um, is going to be slower picking up on the psychological ties than it is on the daily acts of parenting. You really just want to be an invisible person. You want to just have all of your notes, no matter what the situation is with kids, with the battery. Uh, you want all of your notes to do the talking for you. And uh, the more you actually speak up uh, about other certain things, it'll work against you. So just kind of stay quiet. Let your lawyer do the talking and your notes for you. Yep. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. 
Yeah, and you, and also just you know try as much as possible to reduce your emotional response to what you're going through, and that's a goal, and that's an aspirational goal, right? Because almost every one of my clients on their first day in court, they are sobbing throughout the entire experience. It is a grim experience, and that's another reason that you should always have a, you know, ideally you're in therapy while you're going through something like this because it's a very, very hard row. And if you're not in therapy, you are at least in a divorce support group through your church or something because you're going through a lot. There is nothing else in life that's going to be harder than a divorce with kids. So before someone even gets to you, really the first step would be to to contact a social worker and uh, create a plan for you so you can start to do all of these things before they even get to you. Yep, I think that's a great idea. You can't always do it, and sometimes you feel like the legal issues are most pressing. So you're going to start to assemble a team. You're going to consult with a lawyer, interview a lawyer or two. Um, And I thought, by the way, the guest you had on, um, I think a couple of episodes ago, um, I'm going to say her name, Shireen 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 Picard. She had um, some good tips um, for getting, and I would really listen. To, to this today's podcast in in partnership with Shireen. Shireen had this divorce and custody stuff from the angle of a therapist, and here I am from the angle of a lawyer talking about the same issues. So I think those two podcasts could be really useful together. But Shireen talked about interviewing a couple of lawyers, and she said oh, an interesting way to tease out how informed this lawyer is about the kinds of issues you're dealing with is to ask them, hey, I, I need some books. Do you have any books you recommend for me to read to prepare for this process? So I'm a reader. I can give you a whole shelf of books. I've got two shelves of them in my office. You know, hey, this is a really good one if you're dealing with this. And, and then there's John Gottman. His book on domestic violence is great. You know, I've got a million resources. If you're interviewing a lawyer who does not have that, that may not be the lawyer for you. You want somebody who is, you know, smart about the kind the kinds of issues that you're facing. So we're going to assemble a team, and from within that team, we're going to move forward. And and all, what your community do you communicate all with each other, or is that uh, the uh, responsibility of the uh, the abuse victim? So. Um, no, I don't. I don't communicate as a team, and there's formal reasons for that. One is that I want to preserve the legal attorney-client privilege, and that only attaches if it's if it is a privileged conversation between just the attorney and the client. So, if you have a third party in there, you've blown privilege. So, that's one reason not to operate as a team. But I, you know, I want you to work with your therapist and for you and your therapist to make decisions. Again, I'm not trained about the kids, right? I'm not trained to, I'm a mom, but I'm not going to make custodial recommendations to you. So you and your therapist and maybe your mom, whoever, you know, your best friend, your mom, whoever your team is that helps you get through life, consult those people together with a therapist and help make this, you know, start to come up with ideas about a parenting plan. And a parenting plan is the court order that establishes custody and the schedule of visits. And so the parenting plan, and different language is used in every state, but it's more or less parenting plan or parenting schedule um, or visitation schedule, something like that, um, is what you're going to be arguing over in court. 
And so start to get a sense of what you want that to look like. Um, and a lot of people will say, you know, my ex can handle one overnight but can't handle two in a row, something along those lines because you know their drinking pattern or, you know, you know that they can only hold it together for about 36 hours and then after that it's kind of touch and go. A lot of times, you know, if you have those concrete recommendations, those are going to end up in your final parenting plan. So that's why you kind of work with the team. But in general, um, I'm not going to talk to your mental health therapist unless I am so worried about you. So the times when I actually talk to a client's therapist is when I am terrified that my client is too weak to sustain a trial. Um, Is it risk of suicide? Um, Is it risk of going back to somebody who I think is so abusive she may lose her children? Um, those are reasons that I might reach out to a therapist. And, you know, then I have to maintain privilege while I'm talking to that therapist. And so I sometimes ask things in, you know, uh, roundabout ways about, you know, I don't want to convey to the therapist that I'm concerned about suicide, for instance, but I may say something like, you know, hey, you know, have you noticed any changes in so-and-so's conduct lately? You know, do you have any concerns? You you ask questions in such a way that maybe it triggers that person to be worried. Um, Or I've made phone calls to moms, to, you know, grandma, to just say, hey, I'm especially worried after our interview today about how so-and-so is doing. Maybe go check on that. So it's best to approach something that is this challenging, life-altering with a team because your judgment is going to be impaired because of what you've been through. And have you, you've experienced that too, right? You've been in places where your head was really messed up. Um, well, I, 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 I was not married. I, I had someone I was, uh, had a complicated relationship with where yeah. um, you're ju- you just don't know, it's, you don't know it's real. You don't, you're angry and, you know, you have... Right. Uh, no, so I never got, you know, when you have kids and financial abuse and all those things, that's something I have never experienced. And I just, uh, you know, I do my best to imagine how difficult it will be, but I really, it's hard to put yourself into those shoes. I mean, it's a very, very difficult situation for people to be in um, because there's so many variables that are going on. It's hard. You're not going to be able to break free from this person ever. They're part of your life uh, for the rest of your life, no matter what, because of your children. Yep. Um, yep. And it's a lot to mentally uh, deal with, uh, knowing that you cannot get rid of that, and you just have to do your best to get through it. And they're gonna, the children will be affected by it, and there's a lot of worries that go along with any everything, and the need for a a good relationship with a mental health professional to get you through that all uh, for a very long time is needed. So, um, I think so too. Yeah. Just um, my own sort of the way that I conceptualize what people are going through. I feel like abuse, psychological abuse in particular, is like a bruise to the brain. And it takes, you know, just in the same way that if you get a bruise on your knee, it's going to be there for a week or two while the body is gradually dealing with it and healing it. Psychological abuse is like a brain bruise. And it takes a long time for the brain to eat all that stuff up and carry it away and and heal it with new new memories and new this and new that. It's a bruise that needs to heal and, and it will continue to impact you 
and be a little soft and tender even after the external signs of the bruise are gone, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and yeah, then, and then it's throw, still there. And, and, and then yeah. throw kids on top of that. and Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you won't be making your best decisions because you're not in your best head. And that's when it, your team comes in and helps you. Yeah. So uh, we we had a user uh, sorry user question. We had uh, questions come in from the listeners of this podcast. Uh, do we have any more to discuss on on the outline that you gave me, or do you want to get to these questions? And usually, no, the, we can talk about some of the the questions that came in. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of these questions are uh, really going to be just hammering home uh, stuff that we already covered. But uh, I'll start off with question one. And I'll, I'll read it out for you. What is being done or has been done to show just as much credibility in the courts for emotional psychological abuse versus physical abuse? They are both domestic violence. It is much harder to get a restraining order if there are no physical marks. So how is that presented in court and what is needed to prove it? So that is the question for this age. So again, um, like I say, Courts first, and this started, of course, way back in the 70s, courts first had to be educated about physical battery. Courts are now in the process of becoming smarter about um, emotional and psychological abuse. So the answer is it varies by jurisdiction how much awareness there is over the crisis of psychological abuse. And you should probably assume that your court does not know a ton about it. Now, that doesn't mean that you try and educate them. And what it does mean for everybody is that we do the things that we've been talking about. You use quotes, you use dates, you use times, you use whether it was in front of the children or not in front of the children, so that the court gets a concrete picture over time about what this psychological abuse looks like. So if your abuser says, you know, um, I can't believe how stupid you are, and that's said in front of your child. Or, um, you know, you've always been really dumb, but this really takes the cake. You know, write those quotes down and the dates and the times and whether or not your child was, was there. And that's how you win those kinds of cases is you make a record over time. And so these, these it's very hard because your emotional impulsivity is going to be, I can't take this, I've got to get out, I've got to leave right now. But if you have a children in the middle of, if you have children in the middle of this, or if you have substantial property, like if you own a business together, you've got to have your business hat on about what it's going to take to get out of there with your loved ones and valuables in good shape. All right. So question two, I have, uh, I think you're going to have a similar answer, but this one has a little uh, tweak on it. Uh, it's hard to explain myself to my lawyer in court without sounding, sounding overly emotional and dramatic. Uh, the, my lawyer is male, the judge is male, and my ex is a male, and I feel like I'm being victimized all over again in court trying to explain myself. I am ready to give up and no one hears me. Like, you know, what should I do? So really hard. Um, so it's all of the answers that we've been talking about. It's use quotes, dates, times, places, whether it's in front of the children or not. And then also consider that this that your lawyer works for you. And so you want to make sure that that's a good match. And if you're not feeling like that's a good match, then you can call a couple of other lawyers and see if there's somebody who does feel like a like a good match for you. 
so that you're feeling confident in what's going to happen here. So that's issue one. The lawyer works for you. And if you're having concerns, um, it's good for the lawyer to hear your concerns. Another issue, however, has, is that you are looking for emotional satisfaction from the lawyer and from the court somehow um, that is not going to be there because that's not what courts do. And so to help you sort through that stuff, you've got to talk to people who are more neutral. So then you're back into your therapist and then your team. You know, when you've got a friend who's going through a divorce, you know, you you talk to them all. You you talk through people all the time. You're going to need a partner. You know, if you were an AA, a sponsor kind of person to help you go through this divorce. It's just a time when you need to call in your chips from other people and make sure that that you know that you don't sound crazy. So the way that you don't sound crazy is by having quotes, dates, times to present in court. Um, and then you try to be as unemotional in court as you can. The way that you look crazy is when you go to court and you're falling apart because you haven't done the discipline to get yourself into your business head and get proper evidence in front of the court. So I can't say this enough different ways. The court needs evidence. It needs written uh, declarations and petitions. You have to put what you're experiencing into writing. That exercise in and of itself can sometimes pull you out of your emotional brain and help you get into the business brain that you need in order to deal with a court. That being said, make sure you've got the best advocate for you that you can afford, and um, if this lawyer isn't doing it for you, interview one or two others. So that that answer will be the exact same for the next question, which is just to acknowledge that the person who asked this question, which is, it's difficult trying to balance protecting myself from my ex while still having to share custody, knowing not only yep. is he not safe for me, but he isn't safe person for my child emotionally now and uh, eventually physically. How do I convince uh, the judge uh, of this? Because we cannot communicate yep. as adults. So it's, that answer is the exact same uh, for number three. Um, so for this listener, though, what I really wanted to point out was that um, this listener wrote absolutely beautifully, and not that all of them didn't write well and communicate their distress well, but one person, one thing that you guys should all know, everyone who wrote in a question wrote really well, and that means that that's one of your assets because courts really rely on written information. So. You know, that is an interesting thing because um, many times, and this is just such a gross overstatement, but I'm going to make it anyway. A lot of times, um, it's the funny things. Women write more neatly, <laughs> handwrite more neatly, and tend to have better um, verbalization skills. I mean, this is something that we know, that women verbalize a little bit more um, than men do. Women are used to processing with words more than men do. And so that's one advantage in court. And every one of these persons who is feeling like they don't have any strength in court should realize that you write beautifully and that's one of your power tools. So to this person, it's all of the same things. Use, use your, your logic brain, um, use your documents, names, dates, facts, times, whether your child was there, when certain things went down, realize that your communication style in writing is very strong, um, consider using um, one of the controlled communications um, applications like 
uh, talking parents or our family wizard um, work with a domestic violence advocate while you're going through this or with a therapist because um, you need help understanding all of your different reactivity and thoughts about all of this. And then read about and use Bill Eddy's um, communications system so that you're doing everything you can to reduce conflict. The reason that you reduce ongoing conflict is for multiple reasons. One is that you don't want to expose your child to ongoing conflict. That is the one solid piece of data that we have is that um, ongoing conflict between parents leads to the worst outcomes for children. So let me restate that. Conflict between parents leads to the worst outcomes for children in divorce situations. Ongoing conflict between parents is worse than almost everything else you can expose your child to. It scores more highly for children having ongoing anxiety and, and other um, neurological issues, neuro, neuropsychological issues, um, than domestic violence between the parents than anything else. Ongoing conflict is the worst outcome. So to the extent that you can protect your child from seeing ongoing conflict um, between parents, that is absolutely the right thing to do. So then you're back into using the communications apps, using the, the Bill Eddy BIF system. But also, because if you are not exposed to ongoing conflict, that's better for you because it doesn't kick up your, you know, your chronic PTSD-type symptoms um, if the person is just saying, I'll be there at 5 to pick up the kids, <laughs> instead of, you know, you're always so stupid, I, you know, I hope that the kids will be ready at 5, you know, but I don't expect it. You know, that, that is an abusive communication, but in a controlled communication app where you know that they can be presented in court, that interaction is going to say, I will be there at five to pick up the kids because people get on better behavior. So those are some of the tools, and um, I wish you luck. I know how hard this is. Uh, next question from a very good friend of uh, obviously this person. They want to know their friend is married to a narcissist and has been seriously contemplating divorcing him. They've been together for 20 years with three children in a shared business. I've observed the relationship for only one year and cannot imagine what survival and coping she's had to deal with just to get by. She's the epitome of resilience, but is struggling to end it. She tells me it'll be an all-out battle if it goes to court uh, during one of their many fights. He's uh, even threatened to take his life if she leaves. It's not my place to push her in any one direction. That This is her choice she has to make, and she has to feel safe and ready. But I hear how she's hurt, tired, and hopeless. When she's ready, I was wondering what steps she should take to separate herself from her husband, what legal resources uh, she should pursue, and how she should pre prepare herself uh, emotionally, legal, and financially. So financially is easy, so let's knock that off the top. Financially, you do everything you can to get a secret pot of money so that you can sustain a period if your income is frozen or threatened or, or troubled um, or so just that you can establish a separate life that is safe. Um, and then you, you do all the kinds of planning that we have been talking about. Um, so when somebody has been in a very, very long-term relationship and where there is a family business involved and multiple children, this gets very, very, very difficult. So first of all, realize that by the time you have been engaged in a relationship for that long, 
the psychological threads that tie her to this person and this survival pattern are very deep and very hard to break. So I think for me, I'm a reader. And so one of the first things that was useful to me to help me see the kinds of trouble that I was in, because otherwise I wasn't seeing it clearly. We see it clearly in others, but we don't see it, you know, it is as though through a glass darkly for ourselves, right? Um, So the Patricia Evans books about what a verbal abuse looks like might be very helpful to her. Um, So controlling people and... um, Verbal abuse will both be maybe really helpful books for this person. And maybe you start to, maybe you call a domestic violence agency on your friend's behalf and ask if they will serve her and uh, what it would take to serve her. And I think going with her to um, the first meeting at a domestic violence agency would be a huge show of friendship. So you're going to be part of the team that this person needs to get through this process. So, you know, I just helped my best friend get her house ready to sell and put on the market, and I painted and I tiled and I did stuff I wouldn't otherwise do because I love my friend. And that's what you're going to do for this person. There are times in your life when you just have to be a really good friend and um, start by telling her what you see, you know, that you're always there for her, but what you see, this is what you see. And then tell her that you'd like to be part of her her planful um, departure and that this is going to happen by first us reading and and then us talking to some people and then us talking to a therapist and us interviewing a couple of lawyers. And I will tell you that my law partner has the most beautiful phrase I have ever heard. How do you bite? How do you eat an elephant? Bite by bite. And so that's the mindset that you have to have, that this is, you know, whatever one of, I have been a youth coach in different times of my life, um, you know, whatever it is that you coach kids with to to get going or, you know, if you are, uh, uh, how do you get a sales force um, excited about what they're doing? How do you get a kid's soccer team excited about what they're doing? You know, you're going to get this person excited about we can do this and we can get you out the other side and we're going to get you out the other side with either a big payout or a business. And I don't know today what it's going to be, but I bet you it's going to be better than this, (laughs) you know, and then, you know, get them through. So this is a this is a spectacular friend and there's a lot that you can do to start to help your friend get through this. Yeah. And, you know, the cool part of being the lawyer for this, by the way, is watching people give birth to themselves in the second half of their lives, you know, watching people recreate themselves is just absolutely spectacular. Watching them find a new partner who loves them, you know, and they've never been loved before. They don't know what it's like. I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful to watch. Do you stay in touch with these people long after the fact? Not all. Sorry. Some people never want to revisit their divorce again, and so I'm definitely in their rearview mirror. But some people, you know, by the time you've gotten them through this, you've been through so much that, yeah, they remain. I have one person in particular who's remained a very good friend, but I represented him from an extremely narcissistic female um, partner. I represented him for about seven years. But but you you can see the change going on during the actual process. You can see them turning. 
and it's beautiful. Yeah. And, you know, people have no faith. At that low point of their lives, they have no faith. They think that this is going to kill them. And they don't, they can't see what's around the bend. And I've watched so many people go through it that I can see their next life around the bend. And I just keep, you know, you know, stick with me. I think we got this. Stick with me. We're almost there. You know, <laughs> so it's definitely a hard process. And this person is lucky to have such a good friend. Uh, next question. Is there any advice on angles to go at, uh, things to typically anticipate them to do as they have such predictable abusive patterns? A big shout out to this person for knowing that there's probably a pattern that they can attack. Yeah. Um, so just all the same things. I mean, everybody's facing the same kinds of issues. And so it's all the same things. It's, um, you know, assemble the team, document, consider very controlled communications, um, all of those good things. Try and stay in your um, best head, in your business head. And then also, Bill Eddy has some tricks for um, getting enraged partners into their business head. Um, one of the things that that he points out is that um, by asking people to solve problems, you can get them out of their emotional head and back into their thinking head. Um, so if, for instance, somebody is screaming about something in a parenting plan and they're screaming and screaming and screaming, uh, this, that, and the other thing, and, and you can kind of quietly come back to, okay, I see Thursday nights are a problem. How would you solve Thursday nights and put it back on them, um, get them into their thinking head, out of the enraged head, and realize that if you're doing this in a negotiation or something, it's not going to go on forever. You are going to get through this, and eventually you're just going to be shuttling the kids back and forth, and that'll go better, not beautifully all the time, mm-hmm. but better. So uh, question five and six, uh, these have been answered, but I'm just going to say them out loud. You don't have to answer them because you are kind of already answered all of them. I just want these people mm-hmm. to know that we asked the question, what is the best route to follow with custody and visitation rights, and how do you advise to approach the subject without starting a war? That's kind of already uh, been uh, covered. Uh, six was how does emotional abuse affect divorce? Does it affect child custody? Uh, how do you get the judge to see narcissistic abuse? Uh, also, again, that's uh, we've kind of covered that. Uh, the next question, though, um, I, I, a little bit about uh, children. It was my ex was extremely emotional and verbally abusive, but as far as physical abuse, he kept it to chest bumping me, cornering me, and yelling in my face while swinging his arms. So technically, nothing is chargeable. Now my daughter is dealing with him every other weekend and has reported that he does the same to his current girlfriend right in front of her, and then the girl leaves to stay with her parents, leaving my daughter behind. She is very afraid because he has been physically abusive towards her, but has successfully convinced almost everyone at her school, as well as one of her therapists, that she is a pathological liar. Is there anything I can do to protect her from any of this without physical evidence? Now it's his word against my eight-year-old's word, and he is very convincing. So um, without exception, this is the hardest question that I work on, and this is the hardest question that we were asked for this um, podcast. So now um, you're post-divorce and you have a parenting plan and you have a kid in the middle of it who is being abused uh, or who is, at the very least, not thriving. Things are not going well in this um, uh, 
parent and in this parenting plan in this visitation schedule. So what do you do? So first of all, you've started the path correctly with making sure that your daughter is in therapy. And I cannot emphasize this enough, but you've got to realize that this therapy is your daughter's and it's not yours. And so it's not going to address the things that you think should be addressed. Nor do children tend to think of adult problems in the ways that adults do. So while you are talking about things like abuse, she is likely talking to the therapist about the time that he took away her red crayon, and it's not going to look the same. So, And a lot of times, eight-year-olds are not even doing cognitive behavioral therapy in the traditional sense that adults do it. A lot of times, they are doing play therapy, which means they're, you guys did it last week. <laughs> they're down on the floor playing with crayons and talking a little bit about things. Kid therapy takes a long time. It is nonlinear. You make a lot of progress one week. You make no progress the next two, um, those kinds of things. So kid therapy, while important, is not there for the task that you are wanting to serve, which is kind of a tattletale um, about what's going on at your husband's house. So what do you do? So some of the things that you do are you have your daughter around a lot of people so that um, hopefully, you know, maybe she goes out um, for, a, a, you know, just a ice cream treat with her grandparents once in a while. And maybe once in a while, um, grandparents hear a little bit. And maybe once in a while, she goes um, and talks to a, you know, again, a soccer coach or a teacher or somebody. So that if little pieces of this are coming out to a variety of people, then you can use declarations from a variety of people to start to tease at this problem in court. Now, almost every jurisdiction that I have ever seen has a vehicle to come back and modify parenting plans that aren't working. So there is some statute in your system that says, hey, if you need to change a parenting plan or a parenting schedule, this is how you do it. So read that statute. Find out what that statute is. Now, how do you get legal information when you're not a lawyer? A whole bunch of different ways. One is most courts have a, have a facilitator, what's called a family law facilitator or the family law information office, but there'll be somebody who takes, because courts are drowning in uh, people without lawyers who are trying to get divorced and not understanding the process, and so most of them have, like, a, for a $20 fee, you can walk in and get a half an hour with that person and talk to them about what's needed to modify a parenting plan. Um, so start to understand what the legal standard to modify a parenting plan is. So usually it's a, a change in the child um, that means that the parenting plan should be changed. <clears throat> and so then you have to start to document that. And so you do that with declaration, and the declaration from you may include um, a calendar, and that calendar may say things like um, she brought up um, that this happened at Dad's house on this day. She told me that the girlfriend left at 4.30 and that she was she stayed in her room um, until 8.30 because she was scared of her dad kind of thing. Now, you're going to hate the fact that your child is in these circumstances, um, but there's not very much you can do about it. You don't want to be in contempt of court by not providing the child for visitation, so you do want to strengthen your child as much as possible. Hey, when you're back from visitation, um, 
you know, we're going to go to so-and-so's house and look at the new puppy, or we're going to do this. So give him something to look forward to when you get back from visitation, and that this is going to go great. You're going to have a good time. And, um, you know, schedule, you know, see if you can uh, work with the other parent to get things scheduled. Um, you know, like maybe if the child is over there for an extended period of time, that there is at least soccer practice so that you've got your child with eyes and ears of somebody safe on your child um, in the middle of that time period. Um, so build kind of a community safety net. Make sure your child is, even when with there with the other parent, they're seeing um, outsiders whenever he or, he or she can. Um, take good notes on your calendar about what's being said to you. You don't get to interrogate your child about what happens at dad's house. You only get to write down things that are spontaneously said. Um, every, every jurisdiction has either a statute or a parenting plan component that says you don't get to badmouth the other parent in front of the child and that you don't get to use the child to investigate the other parent or find out what's going on in the other parent's household. Children are not to be interviewed. They are not to be harassed. They are not to be, you know, presenting very young children uh, as evidence in um, in a child custody proceeding. And if you do start to go down those paths, then um, independent parenting investigators or guardians ad litem are going to be appointed, and then you're into a situation where you have a lot less control and, and it's costing you a lot of money. So the first response is always wait, watch, and take notes as long as you can. If you become concerned about your child's physical safety and you have good reason to be concerned, um, then you might think about calling the police. Um, I would encourage you to work with a lawyer to decide when it is appropriate to call the police. There are also times when Child Protective Services may be involved. I caution you to not involve Child Protective Services unless you absolutely need to uh, because that can be the law of unintended consequences. Things happen when you involve authorities. Sometimes they don't believe either parent and your child gets taken away. And so be careful about implementing um, CPS investigators and law enforcement. Just be very mindful of the fact that that may cause a whole lot more uh, uncomfort to your child than the, using the patterns that I've described, which are wait, watch, get your child in therapy, take good notes, consider over a longer period of time whether modifying the parenting plan is appropriate. But don't be reactive. Don't assume that things are falling apart. Wait for solid evidence. And this is a time that's going to be extremely anxiety-provoking for you. And the next two questions, so uh, how do you uh, give a child a voice uh, in, in these situations? Uh, how can you advocate for them? How do you, the, the child is having a problem. She's a therapist but won't talk to the therapist uh, about her dad in sessions, so the therapist can't help her much. How do you go about that process as well? Yeah, so I think we answered most of this in the in the last one is that you wait and you watch and you um, see what happens. So in this case, um, I think she said that um, he had been lying in court. And so, you know, he, he's lying in court by saying she wants to be with him. And I'm sitting here telling you 
don't say in court anything about where the child wants to be because the court is going to discount that. So realize that um, the ex saying that is not going to be received with the wide open ears that you think it is. Mm -hmm. What is going to be always respected by courts is the idea that kids need a mother and a father or two parents in some whatever iteration of that that is. What the court knows is that in school, out of school, everywhere that kids are, you know, they talk about things like, you know, who you live with and where's your dad and things like that. So courts want kids to know both parents and where possible to get benefits from both parents. And so the courts tend to go farther than most um, protective parents want in being inclusive of people who are even um, mentally ill in parenting a child. So realize that first. So realize that you're part of a safety net. You're part of helping this child make sense of what they're going through and um, having a sense of resilience after going through what, what they're going through with visits. So courts are looking to the protective parent to be as protective as possible while visits are happening with a less protective parent. And so try very hard not to look at it in terms of win or loss, but look at it in terms of how am I going to cope with this new landscape and make this best for my child. Therapy for children um, is, again, is an insurance benefit, goes somewhere where there are pediatric specialists. Kid therapy is very different from adult therapy for a lot of the reasons that we've talked about. They don't have the cognitive layer uh, laid down. The analytical layers aren't laid down until really, you know, frankly, we're 25 years old, right? That's when we start to have some insight into our emotions for the most part. <laughs> um, so they can't do cognitive behavioral therapy with the same um, level of the efficacy that sometimes adults experience it. So kid therapy is very different. So find somebody who specializes in, in kid therapy. Tell the therapist what you're concerned about so that the therapist is kind of looking out for that. Um, and tell the court, you know, this is why I'm concerned. I'm concerned that these overnights won't go well um, for the following reasons. And um, tell the court about that. Um, again, be concrete. Um, and if you are just saying, I don't want my child to have overnights with him because he's a narcissist, Your Honor, there's no evidence in that. There's no evidence on which the court can base a decision. There are no facts upon which a court can base a decision. But if you can go in and say, on July 12th, this is what he said as he was dropping her off. On July 15th, um, he sent her an email that said this. On July 18th, he called, and she was in tears after the phone call. That is going to have more evidence. But realize that the court is going to favor joint custody so strongly that you also have to come up with ways, things to do to protect your child and to help them get through the visitation process and explain to them, you know, everybody needs two parents in their lives. And so, you know, we're going to make sure that you've got both parents in your life. So you're going to go and spend time with dad and, and you know, it's not going to feel 100% great at first. But I think after a few times, you're going to find it fun, and you're going to find some things that are good to do over there. So have good faith. Operate in good faith. Take good notes. Always be vigilant. Have your child in therapy. That's about the best set of advice I've got for this person. Uh -huh. And also realize this is the hardest question. 
And we have four more questions. Uh, next one. My soon-to-be ex-husband has to go before a professional standards panel where they will decide if they're going to suspend his law enforcement certification indefinitely. He abused me and my statements and evidence will be presented to this panel of members. If he is terminated, can he turn around and file a lawsuit against me for my statements and or evidence that I have provided? He's just so enraged that I told him uh, that I'm worried that he's going to do some crazy stuff to seek revenge if they decide to terminate him. Yeah, so um, th- this person is, again, in that special group of people who are dealing with law enforcement officers on the other side. And if law enforcement officers are going to be dangerous, they really know how to do it. And so, again, I emphasize to you, if you are dealing with a law enforcement officer on the other side, um, you really should be talking to a lawyer um, about some of the issues that you're facing because um, they are very sophisticated in the way that they manage their their behaviors and ways to be, you know, sort of safe while they are being extremely abusive. So, um, you know, the, this question was really kind of phrased in a different way than, you know, the separation, divorce, uh, co-parenting issues that we've been talking about so far. This person... Um, gave testimony to um, remove this person from their law enforcement career, and the questions are really, what can you do to get back at me? Um, So can he sue you? Yes. It may be possible for him to sue you for kind of loss of professional reputation, loss of license, that kind of thing. How do you prove your case in court? All the ways that we've been talking, giving detailed information, giving factual information, not just saying he's a narcissist and so you need to help me, but being very factual about the kinds of abuse you um, you experienced and the, the kinds of concerns that you have. Part of why law enforcement officers are scary is that they're very um, gun proficient and, of course, lethal weapons in the home is one of the profound um, predictors of lethality of outcome. And so you're right to be very, very scared of this person. Um, there, there is a terrible case that comes out of um, my home state where um, the chief of police um, was married and had three children and was also a batterer. And um, as that began to play out in public, uh, and there started to be visitation orders back and forth for the children. He went and picked up the kids one day and shot everybody, including himself. And um, that is the outcome that we absolutely don't want. We know that police officers uh, have a lot of access to guns. We know that they have um, experienced a lot of trauma in their lives because of their line of work. Um, and sometimes that can lead to volatility. So I cannot emphasize enough, protect yourself. The way that you protect yourself in court is that you use facts, dates, times, places, notes from the past, all of those kinds of things that we've been talking about. But you need to be very careful about protecting yourself physically, and you may be somebody who wants to disappear from your jurisdiction and go to a quieter place and turn yourself off of Facebook and all of that kind of thing to protect yourself. All right. Uh, question 10, I should have asked before the other question, but I'll, uh, as it fit in more with the family stuff, which is, my question is, uh, can you file harassment restraining orders if the abuse from the narc continues months and even years after the divorce? And if you can't and you have children together, how do you move on with your life despite being constantly harassed by the narcissist? 
So um, a few things. Yes, you can file um, anti-harassment orders or other kinds of restraining orders even years after the divorce if the harassing behaviors are continuing. So keep good notes. Um, every day, write down what was said, you know, the specific words, um, and keep contemporaneous notes on what you're experiencing. And then gradually those will start to form the evidence that you need in order to get a restraining order. So there are different flavors in most jurisdictions of restraining orders. The, there is the, the violence standard, the domestic violence protection order, often called DVPOs, and that is if you are experiencing physical violence, and that triggers the protections under the Violence Against Women Act and all of that. There are advocates in courthouses to get those, that kind of thing. Anti-harassment orders are um, for different kinds um, of harassment. Now, um, this can be stalking, and there can be electronic stalking orders as well, although sometimes they're included in anti-harassment orders. Um, and this can be, you know, just abusive language at the home, that kind of thing. So you can craft a restraining order. So a lot of times they say that um, the parent will pull up in front of the house, will not exit his vehicle, will wait in front of the house, and then the children will come out by themselves. Uh, and go uh, into the vehicle, and the person is at no time to get out of the vehicle while they are at your home. So that's an example of a restraining order that's used to minimize conflict. Also, um, the parenting apps, and so you can get a person restrained to all communications being through talking parents or something like that. And again, that monitored style of communication tends to create better behavior. So yes, you can you can move for a protection order even long after you've been divorced if abusive behaviors continue post divorce. And question eleven: uh, How do you get them to leave uh, uh, the home? I have owned this house before the marriage, and he won't leave, and it's seven and a half years in. So, um, in most jurisdictions, um, you go after you file for divorce. You go in for temporary orders, um, and usually these are heard something like, oh, three to six weeks after a case is filed. And in those temporary orders, you can ask that um, who gets possession of the house, and then you wait around to sell the house and to enter final orders like a decree of divorce and a final parenting plan. You enter. You wait to enter those orders until um, trial is heard. In my jurisdiction, your temporary orders can be heard anywhere from about three weeks in, um, and then trial will be set for about 14 months after you file. So trial will be about a year after that. And in between that time, you have all of this time to mediate. So how do you get them to leave? Often that early temporary orders phase is where you can get an order that they have to leave the house. But this is a highly factually specific determination, and it's going to – so there's just so much that can change the answer to this question that I can't really – there's no concrete answer that I can give here. There's a lot of variety by jurisdiction. For instance, most of the West Coast states are community property states, and it may be that this home is now community property even though, you know, you came into the marriage with it. So there's just so many variables, it's very hard to talk about. So you need to start um, getting legal advice in your jurisdiction. But generally speaking, the way to get them out is at this temporary orders phase. All right, and now we have the last question. Uh, we lived and wed in Florida, but I moved back to Iowa in March. 
Iowa requires residency of a year to file, and I can't wait that long to move on. I'm not a Florida resident anymore, so how do I get a divorce without having to travel to Florida? Is that possible? Yeah, you got to (laughs) wait. So I even looked up the Iowa uh, statute to make sure that you were right. Yeah, you're right. You got to wait a year. Iowans, they want to make sure that you're sure, I guess. So the only thing to do is to wait. Um, I don't think you want to travel back to Florida and get divorced because that means that venue will be in Florida and every time you have another hearing, you'll have to be in Florida. So my suspicion is that you'll want to wait that year um, and use that year to get the forms, to fill out the forms, to talk to a lawyer or two so that on day 366 you are ready to rock and roll and that you know what you're doing and you've got your business head on and all those kinds of good things. But in terms of an actual divorce in Iowa, it looks to me like you've got to wait a year. All right. So that is all, all the questions. And it's, uh, we went through a lot. This has been a very thorough podcast. And, you know, the thing that I take away the most here is put your business hat on, journal, yep. facts, yep. Uh, dates. And that, that, to, to me, that's the, the most important thing I heard today. And uh, is, did I miss anything? No, that's exactly right. I guess the only other thing I would add is um, be very safe and be constantly evaluating your safety. And if you need help with that, go talk to domestic violence advocates or therapists. So I really want to thank you because this has been, uh, this is, you know, the fact that uh, six months ago, I never dreamed that this would be happening on the podcast and I'm here and I'm talking to you uh, and we're putting out all this information for people to learn from. This is most likely the most important podcast I've had to date. I love listening to everyone's stories and having everyone share their stories uh, with us so they feel less alone and you get their story out. But as far as uh, actual uh, help that people need going to uh, find a lawyer, going to court, uh, understanding how they have to get themselves uh, prepared for everything. This was such an important episode. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart and from everyone else that's listening too for just uh, being part of this and spending two hours uh, with me this morning uh, when you could have been doing something else. So. Uh, Again, uh, Helen? Absolutely. My pleasure. You are doing a real service to people who are going through this, and it's so hard to explain to other people how bad this stuff is, and you're you're doing a really good job of that. And so I'm thrilled to be able to be part of this, part of the process of healing. So uh, thank you very much. And for everyone out there listening, uh, have a good night.